Okay, welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and today we're going to do something a little bit different because it's been about two years and a hundred episodes since I did a recap episode to remind you where we were and what the flow of history was and also give you a forest view of the whole thing. I mean, seriously, we've had about a hundred episodes. And since the last one, we've gotten to know the Anglo-Saxons and their culture really well. Even though our sources are limited, we're still getting a sense of what makes them tick. And we're also learning about the events that were occurring in their political lives and how those shaped their home lives. But I'm guessing that with the detailed look that we've been doing at these people, the speed, or sometimes lack thereof, of the changes that are happening in Britain has probably been lost. So today we're going to be doing a lightning review of the Anglo-Saxon era to date, and we're going to remind you of the major political events that we've talked about. Now, what I won't be doing is talking about the uncertainty of the sources, nor the nuance, nor get into heavy detail of what happened. We've already covered it before, and you can always double back and check out the earlier episodes if you want more detail. This will just be a strict recount of the highlights. Think of it like a Cliff's Notes episode. So here we go. So, Rome had withdrawn from Britannia at about 410. And the Western Empire was collapsing faster than the Denver Broncos offensive line. And things got quiet for a little bit. Well, the record got quiet for a little bit. And we're pretty sure that things in Britannia weren't really all that quiet. However, we just don't know a lot of what was going on there. But at some time around this point, or maybe even a little bit earlier or later, because the Dark Ages are fun that way, St. Patrick tells us that he was kept as a slave in Ireland and then he had a slightly wacky escape. And then in 428, according to tradition, so 18 years after Rome had withdrawn, we're told that Vortigern, the tyrant of the Britons, had given the Isle of Thanet to Kent, though this tradition is probably not entirely accurate. And in 429, we're told that St. Germanus visited Britannia. We don't hear about widespread chaos and pain when he visited, but rather, things seemed stable enough to support a growing heresy that Germanus was sent to deal with, Pelagianism. And in addition to getting into debates with Pelagian bishops regarding the nature of worship, and hurting his foot while out and about, and also having an odd experience with a house fire, Germanus also helped the Brits organize a defense against the Picts and the Saxons, quite possibly in North Wales. And prior to that fight, he baptized the army. So we've learned that 19 years after Rome left the island, it was still stable enough for a sect of bishops to flaunt their wealth, and that wealth was in line with what we've seen in some digs from the post-Roman era. And on top of that, we're still seeing that Christianity was ingrained to the point that the church was focused on fighting over issues on how to worship rather than just doing whatever is needed to convert pagans. However, it was also dealing with raids, so Britannia wasn't perfectly stable, and given the fact that prior to the fight Germanus still needed to perform baptisms, who knows how extensive Christianity was. So what we're seeing is a complex picture that is composed of greys rather than blacks and whites. And speaking of Christianity, Britannia was not the only Western island with a focus on that religion. Two years after Germanus, In 431, Palladius was sent to Ireland, and he was tasked with converting the Irish, and he would end up having mixed success. And then sometime around 432-ish, we're told that St. Patrick returned to Ireland and began his conversions. Though there are some arguments that Patrick and Palladius were mixed up by the Irish writers, and that whole thing is a big mess, but whatever. The point is that there were still Christians in Britannia at this point, and enough of them that Christianity flowed from Britannia to Ireland. And also, enough to continue to cause trouble with heresy, because in the 440s, we're told that St. Germanus returned once again to deal with the Pelagians. But for the British, the Pelagian heresy and the disapproval of the Roman Catholic Church was the least of their troubles. Because in the 440s, it looks like the raids were getting out of hand for the Britons. And Gildas tells us that Britannia was basically under siege sometime between 446 and 454. And it was so bad that they wrote to Rome and begged for support. Quote, To Agatus, in his third consulship, come the groans of the Britons. 
The barbarians drive us to the sea. The sea drives us upon the barbarians. By one or the other of these two modes of death, we are either killed or drowned. And for these, they have no aid. In the meantime, the severe and well-known famine presses the wandering and vacillating people, which compels many of them without delay to yield themselves as conquered to the bloodthirsty robbers in order to have a morsel of food for the renewal of life. End quote. It sounds grim. And unfortunately, Aetius didn't save them. And before you accuse him of being a slacker, keep in mind that it was probably because he was too busy dealing with Attila. Yes, that Attila. So the Britons were left to their own devices, and were told that in 449, while Attila was fighting Rome, the Saxons, or maybe the Angles, arrived at Ipwenes Float in three longships under the command of two brothers, Hengist and Horsa, along with Hengist's son, Aesk. Hengist has a legendary history, as he's mentioned in sagas, and he also has his line tied to Woden, so it's hard to say what the truth about him is. But we're told that he arrived, and that the Britons struck a deal with him, and that they allowed the Saxons, or Angles, to stay in the lands that they inhabited if they would agree to fight for the Britons. And part of the deal was that the Britons would, of course, pay for the service of these mercenary Germans. And at around this time, we do see archaeological evidence of villages emptying out in the traditional homelands of the Anglo-Saxons. And there were also climatic shifts that were happening at around this point that were probably motivating the people to want to move to more fertile areas, not to mention the growth of Frankish power in other neighboring nations that probably had them worried. And digs have shown that Anglo-Saxon artifacts started to show up in Britannia. So while genetic studies have suggested that there wasn't a genocide of the Britons, and a replacement of the population by the Anglo-Saxons, which contradicts the popular myth of this era, there does appear to have been some level of migration that was occurring when we look at the archaeological record. And it very well could have been initially as mercenaries, which was a common move for the Romanized populations to make. After all, hiring barbarians to fight other barbarians was about as Roman as marrying your sister. And it wasn't just the Anglo-Saxons that were brought in to help the raids at this point. It looks like there were also leaders from the north, like Cunetha, who came down to help deal with the raids of North Wales. But eventually, conflict broke out between the Germanic settlers and the local Britons, and we're told that this fight started over issues of payment, which does sound plausible. And in the end, this fight would turn out to be painful for all involved, with tales from the continent of Anglo-Saxons taking refuge in continental kingdoms, and there were also Britons legging it from the island and settling on the continent in areas such as Brittany. Things in Britannia just seemed like they went to hell in a handbasket for everyone involved. It wasn't a one-way slaughter. It just sucked. And according to the Chronicle, in 455, Vortigern, the tyrant of the British, fought Hengist and Horsa at Agales Threp, which is maybe Aylesford. So maybe the British were organizing around a singular figure at this point. And while Vortigern does take a beating in the record, it looks like he wasn't all that bad because during this battle, we're told that Horsa, brother of Hengist, was killed, and that he was buried in Kent, marked with a monument bearing his name. So it sounds like things were tacking in the direction of the Britons. But then two years later, in 457, Hengist and his son Aesk fought the Britons at Craigan Ford and killed 4,000 men, causing the Britons to flee Kent and go to London. So it sounds like Kent might have been dominated by the Germanic settlers at this point. However, that doesn't seem to have been entirely black and white either, because there's a striking absence from the record of any mention of Hengist becoming the King of Kent. But following that Germanic victory, things do appear to have quieted down, and we don't have any news for eight years. And then in 465, Hengist and Aesk fought the Britons at Wipeta's float. And there they killed 12 British chiefs, and only lost one of their thanes, a man named Whippet. So yeah, things did seem to be turning against the Britons. And then we have another eight-year gap. And then another instance where the Britons fought Hengist and Aesk this time in 473. And once again, Hengist was victorious. And then the Chronicle stops mentioning Hengist. It isn't clear what happened there. But only a few years later, in 477, Ayla and his sons Caiman, Lenking, and Sisa landed three ships at Kemenizora, 
where they killed a bunch of Britons and drove them into Sussex Weald. I find it interesting that he arrived with three ships, just like Hengist. And Ayla, like Hengist, appears to have been more of a warrior rather than just a settler or a farmer. And in 485, he fought the Britons at a stream called Mercredis Berna. Things were turning heavily against the Britons at this point, and it must have become all too clear for them three years later, in 488, when Aisk, son of Hengist, became the king of Kent. I should mention that the chronicle mixes Aisk and Oisk, so it's messy, but we're told that Aisk would rule for 24 years. So at least according to the chronicle, it looks like Kent was now firmly under Anglo-Saxon control. Meanwhile, the line of Hengist were not the only group of Germanic settlers that were having success. In 491, Ayla and his son Sisa besieged Andrade's Sester, which was the Roman fort next to Pevensey. And something really unusual happened here. Ayla and his son won the battle, and that's not unusual. What's unusual is that they killed everyone inside after that battle. That's really rare, and it might be indicative of how brutal this conflict was becoming, or maybe just how brutal Ayla was. Or maybe it was in response to something awful that happened to them, sort of like how decades earlier Alaric was reacting to Rome being, well, unreasonable and awful. But whatever the case, Ayla seems to have really brought the hammer down on the Britons, and then he went on to found the kingdom of the South Saxons, Sussex. And actually... He was the first king recognized by Bede as having overlordship over all the English south of the Humber. He was the first Bretwalda. So he was a big deal in his time. And now Kent and Sussex were under Germanic control. And then in 495, the chronicle tells us that Churditch arrived at Churdice's Aura and fought the Britons that he found there. Six years later, Aethelweird says that Churditch would establish a community known as the West Saxons also sometimes known as the Gawissa. It's not clear how much territory they held at this point, but now they had a name and a cultural identity. So now that's three kingdoms in the south. Things were getting worse for the Britons. And then, at about 500, the battle at Mons Badonicus occurred. This is known as the Battle of Mount Baden, or Baden Hill. The material regarding this fight is sparse to say the least. And we aren't sure exactly who was fighting there. Maybe Ayla, considering that he was a Bretwalda, but only maybe. Who knows? But what we are told is that it was an enormous victory for the British, and that the Germanic army was slaughtered. So things were turning again, this time towards the Britons. And that's something that we're seeing when we look at the big picture of what was occurring. This wasn't a one-way invasion or defense. Things were moving in both directions, with refugees from both sides of the conflict fleeing the island. And really, this wasn't a massive sustained war either. It was spotty and sporadic. I mean, we're just hearing about nine battles in about 50 years. If we had nine riots in the last 50 years in Portland, which would probably be due to a shortage of beer or quinoa or something, no one would say that Portland was rioting for the last 50 years. People would just say Portland rioted nine times in the last 50 years. Or maybe nine riots over beer? Those people need better priorities. But they definitely wouldn't say that we are in a constant state of rioting. So to me, this just doesn't sound like outright war. Was it bad? Sure, awful things were happening and people were dying, and I want to make that absolutely clear, but it just wasn't 50 years of sustained war, at least not according to the record that we have, and the fights were often more like gang fights rather than the sort of things that we'd imagine in a war. And frankly, there weren't even really kings at this point, at least not the way we think of them. Maybe Hengist and Ayla were more in the model of warrior kings, but even in their case, the Anglo-Saxon settlers were insanely poor, living in hovels generally. And frankly, for most of the settling communities such as the West Saxons, even their leaders were pretty much just farmers. With only a few possible exceptions, it just wasn't an invasion of warriors. It does look like some mercs arrived, but then there were just a bunch of farmers and settlers trying to get out of the chaos of the continent, looking for fertile land or something like that. And speaking of farmers, we have Churditch of the West Saxons. And we're told that in 508, Churditch and his son fought a British king named Natanliod. 
So Cherdich, who was treated like a king in the sources, has had two battles in 13 years. See, not a warrior. This guy was a farmer who sometimes had to fight. And then six years later, Stuff and Wittgar show up, and they took the Isle of Wight. Maybe. Well, it's entirely possible that they didn't, actually, because it very well could have been legend, since their story seems to have been a bit of a rehashing of the story of Cherdich and Chinerich. So really, who knows there? But it looks like by this point, the tide of conflict had largely left Kent, and now it was Wessex that was the hotbed of violence between the Germanic settlers and the local Britons. And in 519, Cherdich and his son Chinerich fought the Britons at Charford, and at the end of that battle, they became the leaders of the West Saxons. So it took him 24 years to get in charge of that kingdom. Not a warrior, and also not some sort of powerhouse king either. And then eight years later, in 527, Cherdich and Chinerich again fought the Britons, this time at Cherdich's Lay. So now we're up to four battles in 32 years. Three years after that, in 530, we're told that the Isle of Wight was conquered by the West Saxons. It isn't clear who was living there. Was it the Brits? Was it the Jutes? Who knows? Whatever the case, the land was given to Stefan Wittgar. And again, this makes the story of the arrival of Stefan Wittgar seem quite questionable. And then, in 534, after 39 years in Britannia, Cherdich died, and his son Chinerich took over. And once again, the record goes quiet. And in 540, a plague struck Britannia. And this might have turned the tide against the Brits, since some have argued that the Anglo-Saxons might have been more resilient to this particular strain of plague than the Britons. And if that's the case, then the issue of disease might have really hampered the Britons' ability to push back against the Germanic expansion. Sort of like what happened to the Native Americans in the colonial era. And that could help explain the establishment of the Anglo-Saxon aristocracy. I mean, when looking at the graves from this era, we don't see evidence of a genocide. But rather, we see mixing. And the written record seems to show conflicts occurring for personal reasons rather than some sort of monolithic invasion. So it does seem possible that a plague that was harder on the Britons rather than the Anglo-Saxons could have resulted in a shift of power, and as a result, the Anglo-Saxons started to take on more leadership roles. Now, interestingly, Gildas was writing at right around this point in time, probably from very far away, because he was throwing bombs at kings that probably didn't like hearing what he had to say. And so that means that during all of this chaos and plague, the five kings of Wales that Gildas absolutely loathed were running around. And if we believe what Gildas had to say, it does sound like British leadership wasn't all that it could have been. And so that might have hamstrung the British defense as well. Then we're told that in 554, Wittgar of the Isle of Wight died. But don't get too sad because he might not have existed at all. And for over a hundred years, the rulers of Wight are left completely unmentioned. So who knows what was going on there? The Welsh Annals say that three years later, in 547, that was the year of the Great Mortality. So that might be the point where the plague hit Wales in force. And it does look like at least one of the hated kings of Gildas, King Maelgwyn, died during it. That same year, while the Britons of Wales were suffering through the plague, Ida became the ruler of the northern kingdom of Bernicia, which had been ruled by the British until this point and he established his capital in a fort that would later become known as Bamber. And I can't help but wonder if his Anglo-Saxon background was causing a bit of friction with the local Britons. Meanwhile, things down south were sparking up again. In 552, so 12 years after the start of the plague, we're told that the Germanic settlers and the British were back at it and were fighting once again. This time, Chinerich fought the Britons at Sarum, and this was significant because it showed that the West Saxons were expanding their kingdom into the West. And also, with figures like Chinerich, we're seeing that their societies were becoming a bit more stratified, with hierarchies forming. Kings were now passing their rule to their sons. Families were becoming ruling families. Power was centralizing. Even the young children of rulers were seen as having their own renown, being buried with lavish grave goods. And one of those important children might have been born on this very year. Because some sources say that in 552, 
King Aethelbert of Kent was born. And we'll get to him in a minute. But in addition to the stratification, cultures were forming, with different kingdoms having different customs, and those would have identified them as separate from one another, even though all of those kingdoms might have been nominally Anglo-Saxon from our perspective. But while those differences were appearing, homogenization was also starting to happen. It probably started at the upper levels of society, with cliques forming between the ruling classes. And through this notion of a cool crowd, the Anglo-Saxon kingdoms began to merge their cultures, and also heighten their distinction between themselves and the Celtic West. And then, four years later, in 556, the West Saxons were at it again. And this time, Chinerich and his son Chawlin fought the Britons at Bramburi, and expanded their border 30 miles north. And speaking of north, what was going on in Bernicia? Well, in 559, after 12 years of rule, Ida of Bernicia died. It doesn't say how he died, but he might have been succeeded by his son Glapa. Maybe. But he didn't last long, and a year later, in 560, Ada, another son of Ida, was ruling as the king of Bernicia. See what I mean about rules solidifying to dynasties? Here we have two sons of the prior king ruling back to back. And that same year we have another example of it, because Chinerich of Wessex died, and his son Chalin took over. So we have rule passing down to a son, and then down to a grandson. And Chalin, the grandson, was handed an already powerful kingdom, and he would take it even farther, becoming the second of Bede's Bretwaldas. And actually, 560 was a pretty big year for political changes, as well as signals regarding the importance of dynasties, because we're also told that Aethelbert became the king of Kent. And if you're doing the math on that, that would mean that if the sources were correct, Aethelbert was eight years old at this point. So yeah, dynasties. And I should mention that these Anglo-Saxon dynasties weren't interested in Christianity at all. They were pagan. Christianity did survive in small pockets, and also in the Celtic West, but in the upper echelons of Anglo-Saxon Britain, it was absent. But the Celtic West and Christianity weren't going down without a fight, and in 563, St. Columba traveled from Ireland to Scotland and started to convert the population that he found there to, of course, Christianity. And don't forget, thanks to the efforts of Palladius, Patrick, and others, Ireland was now staunchly Christian. And while Columba was in Scotland, he founded the monastery at Iona. Meanwhile, just a little ways to the south, after ruling for eight years, Ada of Bernicia died. And yet another son of Ida, Aethelric, took over. And his rule was pretty tough, since it looks like Aethelric fought pretty much constantly against the neighboring British kingdoms during his tenure. Oh, Bernicia. And actually, it wasn't just the north that was having issues. Down south, King Aethelbert of Kent decided to try and throw his weight around in 568, and he attacked the West Saxons. And that was a bit of a mistake, because King Chawlin of Wessex sent him packing in short order. And the West Saxons weren't done fighting, so in 571, Cuthwulf of Wessex, who might have been King Chawlin's brother, fought the Brits at Begkin Ford. And this was a significant fight, because he managed to substantially expand the holdings of Wessex by taking control of Lensbury, Aylesbury, Benson, and Einsham. Additionally, this battle showed that there weren't strong cultural and ethnic lines in Britannia. You couldn't say, past this line are the Welsh, and everyone on this side of the line are Anglo-Saxons. Rather, there were British communities all over the place, even within 40 miles of London. The other thing that's interesting about this is that Chawlin wasn't fighting at that battle, despite the fact that he was supposed to be a Bretwalda. And that same year, East Anglia appears in our record, because that's the year that Wuffa became king. And Wuffa is notable for two reasons. First, because he was the basis of the East Anglian ruling dynasty, the Wuffingas. And second, because he was Raidwald's grandfather. One year later, in 572, King Aethelric of Bernicia died after ruling for only a handful of years, and his brother, Theodric, took over. How many sons did Ida have? Good God! But hey, 
That's a good thing because Bernicia and their British neighbors were repeatedly getting into fights, and at least four British kings fought against the sons of Ida. And speaking of British kings that had an issue with Bernicia, it looks like King Urien of Regid raided deep into Anglian territory. And he was doing incredibly well. It was going so well, in fact, that he even managed to corner and besiege King Theodric and his family. So this looked like it might have been a major turning point for the Britons. Until one of Urien's allies assassinated him, and the chaos from that event allowed Theodric and his family to escape. Oops. Meanwhile, down south in 577, it looks like the Britons were also having an issue with their expansive Germanic neighbors. And three kings, Conmail of Gloucester, Condedin of Serencester, and Faramail of Bath, went out to meet the men of Wessex in battle at Durham. However, it didn't go all that well, and Chalin and his son, Cuthwina, were victorious. And now the lands of the Severn Valley were under the control of Wessex. This was a major victory for the Germanic East, because it effectively cut off Wales from their allies in the Cornish Peninsula. And at about this same point, Wuffa of East Anglia died, and his son, Titilla, who was Raidwald's father, took control of the East Angles. So while there wasn't a single tide of battle, and things were flowing in both directions, it really does look like following the plague of 540 and 547, things were really turning against the Britons. But they weren't done fighting. And in 579, Bernicia and Regid were back at each other's throats. And this time, it looks like King Theodric got into a scuffle with Owain Maburian of Regid. For those of you who are not up on your old British, that translates to Owain's son of Urien of Regid. So it looks like he wanted to finish his father's task. However, it wasn't going too well for Owain, and Theodric clearly thought he had the upper hand on the British king. So he demanded some hostages before he put an end to the fighting. Upon seeing Theodric's offer, apparently Owain told the Bernician king where he could shove his demands. And that didn't sit too well with him, and so he attacked. But frankly, Theodric should have taken a deep breath and maybe let it slide. Because in that attack, Theodric died. Oops. And now Frithuwald, another of Ida's sons, took the throne of Bernicia. Meanwhile, after seven years of peace, Chalin of Wessex was looking to rumble once again. And in 583, we're told that Chalin and Cutha fought the British at Fratherna. And it looks like it might have been a bit of a debacle, because the Chronicle says that Cutha died in that battle, and that Chalin took wealth and territory before retreating to his territory. Retreating? Reading between the lines, it sounds like it was a terrible loss for the West Saxons, and the scribes were just trying to put a positive spin on it. But, much like Theodric of Bernicia, Chalin of Wessex might have overestimated his own abilities. And this very well might have been where Chalin's political power started to collapse. Two years later, in 585, we learn that King Frithuwald of Bernicia died, and Hussa took over. And interestingly, it isn't clear if Hussa was part of the line of Ida. He just sort of appeared. So maybe people in Bernicia were starting to feel that only going with members of this one family wasn't working out for them. But who knows? That same year, down in the south, we're told that Sled became the king of the East Saxons, and he married Ricola, the daughter of King Ethelbert of Kent. So Kent, which has largely been out of the spotlight for a while, was starting to dabble in power and formed a marital alliance with a southern neighbor. And in 588, we get our first mention of Deira, which will become important later on. And we're told that their king, Ayla, died, and Aethelric of Deira took the throne. Now he might have been Ayla's son, or he might have been from another dynastic line. But what we do know is that nearby there was a son of Ayla who was waiting in the wings, a man by the name of Edwin. But who cares about the strife in the north when we have the collapse of the power base of Chalin of Wessex to focus on? And that truly came to a head in 591, when Chol appears in the record. And Chol might have been Cutha's son, and he might not have been too pleased about his father dying in battle for basically nothing. But whatever his motivations were, we're told that Chol seized the throne of Wessex, and Chalin was not too pleased about this. Not one bit. And so in 592, 
we see that there was a civil war racking Wessex, and that there was, quote, great slaughter, end quote, at Wodensburg, which some have translated to Woden's Barrow. And what an awesome name for a battle site that would be. And now it even has a creepy name, Adam's Grave. But regardless, after this battle, Chawlin was driven out. And actually, 592 was a banner year for driving out kings that people weren't a fan of, because up in Bernicia, we either hear of Hussa dying or being driven out, and Aethelfrith, the grandson of Ida, took the throne of Bernicia. But Chawlin wasn't taking his ouster laying down, and he continued an insurgency until 593, where he died, along with two supporters, Quichelm and Creta. And then tradition tells us that in 595, in Rome, Pope Gregory the Great decided to convert the Anglo-Saxons, allegedly due to meeting young slave boys from Deira. However, that's probably entirely myth. But regardless, two years later, in 597, Augustine, along with 40 missionaries, arrived at the court of King Aethelbert of Kent and immediately began preaching to the people and began his conversions a social shift was occurring in the southern kingdom. Meanwhile, in the north, Aethelfrith was being pretty damn Aethelfrith, and we're told that in 600, he fought the Battle of Catraith, which was ostensibly a fight between Bernicia and Godothan. And this was an utter disaster for the Britons. And at the end of it, Aethelfrith and Bernicia might have started to get a sense that after years of constant conflict, they'd gotten pretty good at fighting. And a fight of a different sort was happening down in the south. And by 601, though maybe as early as 597, Augustine won the battle, and King Aethelbert of Kent converted to Christianity. Augustine also received orders that he was to be the Archbishop of the English, and that an archbishopric would be based in London. However, London was held by a pagan king, Sled of the East Saxons. So that's a bit awkward, and he must have wondered how the hell he was going to pull that off. So rather than focusing on that, between 602 and 604, Augustine met with the British bishops. Because don't forget, the British were still Christian. But it became pretty clear early on that Augustine was really cozy with the Anglo-Saxons and hostile to the Brits, despite the fact that these Anglo-Saxons had been Christian for about 15 minutes and the Brits had held on to their faith following the fall of the Western Empire, and even had helped it spread. But Augustine was not impressed. And so, after arguing over who was in charge of the British church, the dating of Easter, and how to properly cut one's hair, talks broke down and Augustine made a rather nasty threat, and the Brits basically told him where he could shove his threats, and things went downhill from there. So yeah, things were not going well between the Britons and the Anglo-Saxons in the south. And it wasn't getting any better in the north, either. Because in 603, Aidan Macgabrain, the king of Dalriada, and Herring, son of Hussa, the same Hussa who was once the king of Bernicia, fought with Aethelfrith of Bernicia at the Battle of Degsistan. The British forces that Aidan and Herring brought to bear heavily outnumbered the Bernicians. However, this is Aethelfrith we're talking about, and Bernicia was once again victorious, and Dalriada was so thoroughly broken by this fight that they wouldn't fight the Anglo-Saxons again for at least another 130 years. It must have been bad. Looking back down south, something positive happened for Archbishop Augustine in 604, because Sled, the king of the East Saxons, died, and his son Sabert took over. Now, saying that Sled died is pretty harsh, but the fact of the matter is, is that Sled was a tough nut to crack. Sabert, on the other hand, was the nephew of Aethelbert of Kent, not to mention the fact that he was also an underking to the Kentish king. So, Aethelbert had more than a little influence over Sabert, and King Sabert soon converted to Christianity, and construction began on a cathedral in London, under the supervision, of course, of King Aethelbert of Kent. So things were going just the way Pope Gregory wanted. And King Aethelbert even got King Raedwald of East Anglia to try Christianity out. But it really didn't take, and he and his wife, who was from Essex, agreed that they would rather keep their old gods than just have this one new god. And then, Archbishop Augustine died, and Lawrence took over. 
Actually, 604, which is when that happened, was a pretty busy year because while all of this was happening in the South, there was still stuff going on in the North. Because following his success the prior year at Degsistan, King Aethelfrith of Bernicia decided to kill Aethelric of Deira and take the throne for himself. Now this might have been an invasion, or it might have been part of a palace coup, but whatever the case, it wasn't long before he took Acha, who was the daughter of the old king Ayla of Deira, into his bed. And he started hunting down the remaining members of the Deiran dynasty. And it looks like just Edwin and a few others escaped. And Acha soon became pregnant. And during his run, Edwin married a princess of Mercia, Quenberg, and possibly took refuge in that kingdom for a while. So now Mercia is on the map. But yeah, the north was just a mess. Unless you were Aethelfrith. If you were Aethelfrith, then it was awesome. And three years later, in 607, Cholwulf of the West Saxons was looking to expand their power a bit more and they attacked the old kingdom of the South Saxons, and defeated them, possibly gaining control of the Isle of Wight. And then, four years later in 611, King Cholwulf died, and King Chinegils of the West Saxons took over. Meanwhile, up in the north at about 614-ish, the dynastic power struggle that began as much as a decade earlier was still raging, and Edwin of Deira's nephew, Hereric, was poisoned at the court of King Cheritich of Elmet, most likely on orders of King Aethelfrith of Northumbria. The dynasty of Deira were starting to look a bit like the Starks of Winterfell. And then, at about 615, King Aethelfrith of Northumbria marched out and fought the Battle of Chester where he killed a great number of British warriors, and also as many as 1,200 monks. It's possible that he was hunting down Edwin of Deira, who was possibly spending some time there hiding in the kingdom of Gwyneth. But it looks like Edwin had relocated to East Anglia. And then 616 rolled around, and everything went crazy. King Aethelbert of Kent died, and the throne went to his pagan son, Aidbald, who tried to marry his stepmother, like you do. And King Raidwald of East Anglia began to act as Bretwalda. And considering that he was a pagan, that was a pretty big blow for the church. And then King Sabert of Essex died, and his three pagan sons took over and ejected the Christian missionaries out of their kingdom, which included London. And so yeah, none of this was good news for the church. But all this turmoil wasn't just restricted to Christians. This is the same year that King Raidwald, along with his son Regan Hera and Edwin of Deira, decided that they were going to fight Aethelfrith of Northumbria. And they defeated him. And at the end of that battle, Aethelfrith was dead, as was Regan Hera. And Aethelfrith's sons had fled to Dalriada. And then King Raidwald installed Edwin as king of Northumbria. This year was a massive restructuring for power in the east. The church was in retreat, and the once powerful Aethelfrith was dead, and now Edwin had come out of nowhere to take the throne, and he acted as a sub-king to East Anglia, and now the pagan king Raidwald was basically all-powerful. What a shift. And the following year, in 617, the shockwaves of that event were still being felt. King Edwin of Northumbria killed King Cheritich of Elmet, possibly for killing Edwin's nephew. And the East Saxons got into a fight with the West Saxons over Seri, and during that fight, the three sons of Sabert were killed, leaving Sabert's grandson, Sigebert, as the sole king of the East Saxons. And Surrey was still controlled by the West Saxons, and probably doing a little victory dance. And so Essex's power was waning, with Wessex becoming a militarily potent neighbor. And it was no secret that Kent had designs on London, so Essex was in a tight spot. But speaking of Kent, this was the same year that King Aidbald of Kent decided to give up his plans to have a weird marriage with his stepmother and instead converted to Christianity. So at least there was a little bit of a gain for the church at this point. And then things went quiet for a while again. They were actually quiet for about seven years, until 624, where King Raidwald of East Anglia died, and his son, Erpwald, took the throne. And this doesn't look like it was without controversy, and it looks like his brother, Sigebert, a different Sigebert than the one of Essex, wanted to take control of the throne. So it looks like there was some infighting going on. And during that period, Edwin, not Erpwald, 
took the mantle of Bretwalda, which might have been a bit of a blow for the line of Raidwald. But you snooze, you lose, and Edwin moved fast, dominating the Mercians and leaning heavily on his neighbors in order to create a vast power base. Meanwhile, Irpwald of East Anglia married a Kentish woman, and that might have helped him out in his internal war, because with his possible Kentish support, King Irpwald was successful, and Sigebert was forced to flee to Francia. And there, Sigebert, who was a pagan, converted to Christianity. And Christianity, which was at a serious ebb in the east, was starting to make a comeback with Edwin marrying the daughter of King Ethelbert of Kent in 625. And this was significant because she was Christian and brought with her Paulinus, who would become the Bishop of Northumbria pretty soon thereafter. The pressure to convert was on, though Edwin did drag his feet a little bit. And frankly, for Edwin, this merely signaled that he was expanding his umbrella of control over regions in the south, such as the Isle of Wight. And that really wasn't appreciated by everyone involved, because we hear that in 626-ish, Quichhelm of the West Saxons tried to have Edwin assassinated, but he failed. Apparently, it happened on Easter while Edwin was waiting for the birth of his daughter, which is a bit cheeky. And as a result, Northumbria went on a campaign of retribution against the southern kingdom that left Wessex subordinate to Northumbria. And then, on Easter 627-ish, Edwin was baptized, as well as large groups of his own subjects. And in classic Edwin fashion, he moved fast on his new objectives, namely the spread of the religion. And he convinced King Erpwald of East Anglia to convert to Christianity. Unfortunately for King Erpwald, his conversion wasn't appreciated by everyone, and the East Anglian king was assassinated by Rickbert, a pagan of unknown origins, and he ended up taking the throne. Meanwhile, the following year in 628, Mercia fully burst onto the scene, and they attacked the West Saxons, who were probably still limping after the beatdown that had been delivered by Edwin, and Penda and his Mercian forces were victorious. And now the Lower Severn Valley, which Chalin had taken from the British about 50 years earlier, was Mercian territory. And about a year later, so 629-ish, Edwin invaded the Kingdom of Gwyneth, and defeated and exiled King Catwathlin, who very well might have been his own foster brother. Northumbria was growing in power, and it was growing to such an extent that they were exerting control over even Welsh territories. The following year... Ish, Sigebert of East Anglia returned from Francia and defeated and killed King Rickabert of East Anglia and took the throne back for the line of Raidwald. And then he shared his rule with Egric, who was a pagan of the line of the Wolfingas. And then, in 631, thanks to the efforts of the Christian king Sigebert, East Anglia got its own bishopric. Christianity was returning with a vengeance. But sometimes politics intervene and Christian Catwathlin had returned from exile with Irish support and joined up with pagan Penda of Mercia. And on October 12, 633, or 634, they attacked the newly converted Edwin at Hatfield Chase. Edwin was killed, as was one of his sons, and another was captured. The last of Edwin's descendants then fled into exile. But it wasn't just Edwin's line that felt the effects of the loss at Hatfield Chase. We're told that Catwathlin of Gwyneth scourged Northumbria, and that the people of Northumbria, who were only recently converted, abandoned Christianity and returned to their old gods. Maybe they thought that Woden could provide them some sort of protection, and frankly, they could definitely use his help. Things were going bad. And Osric, a son of the prior king Aethelric of Deira, was trying to organize a defense of Deira, but he was soon killed by Catwathlin. Then Ainfrith, who was one of the sons of Aethelfrith who fled into exile to Dalriada, claimed the throne of Bernicia, and he went to sue for peace with Cadwathlin, and Cadwathlin had him killed. But Cadwathlin's reign could not last forever, and in 633 or 634, Oswald, son of Aethelfrith, returned from exile in Dalriada and attacked Cadwathlin at Heaven Field and killed him. Oswald was now king of Northumbria, and his other brother, Oswiu, joined him, as did a number of Christian missionaries, and they went straight to work to convert the population. 
Once again, things were changing rapidly. The region had experienced a massive shift. And Penda of Mercia must have heard of what happened, because soon thereafter, he killed Ainfrith, the last son of Edwin, who had been his captive. So now Edwin's line was gone. And at some point around here, it looks like Oswald was being pretty friendly with the West Saxons, and even sponsored King Chinegil's baptism and married his daughter. So what we're seeing here is that Oswald was forming pretty large ties on both sides of the Humber. And actually, Oswiu married part of the royal dynasty of Regid at around the same point as well. So ties were also being made with the Celts, whom Oswald was already somewhat friendly with due to his time in exile. And at about this same point, King Sigebert of East Anglia abdicated the throne and entered a monastery, renouncing worldly concerns. And that following year, in 635, St. Aidan, who assisted conversions in Northumbria, established his monastery at Lindisfarne, a monastery that will become famous later on. And then, sometime between 635 and 641, Penda of Mercia marched on the recently converted East Anglians, possibly over control of the Middle Angles. Egric was organizing the defense, but they still brought King Sigebert out of his monastery and forced him to fight as well though he was only armed in robes and a staff. And it didn't go well, and Penda defeated the East Anglians handily and killed both of their kings. So Anna, another member of the Wuffingas, soon took over the throne of East Anglia. Meanwhile, up north in 638, Godothan fell, possibly at the hand of Oswald of Northumbria. So Northumbrian power was growing once again. And Wessex, which had been a powerhouse for a little while, wasn't really much of a threat, being dominated by both Northumbria and Mercia. And Kent, which had often been really beefy, was dealing with internal issues because in 640, Aidwald of Kent, the son of Aethelbert, died after ruling for 24 years. And he was succeeded by Ericumbert, and maybe Ermenred, who was serving as an underking. So Kent might have been a bit distracted. And then, Mercia and Northumbria two kingdoms that were vying for that number one spot, met at 641-ish. Now, Oswald of Northumbria might have had the support of Eowa of Mercia, or King Eowa might have been fighting with his brother, Penda of Mercia. What we do know is that Penda had Poas on his side, and he possibly also had support from Gwyneth. And so the Welsh Mercian forces fought with Oswald, and in the end, they were victorious, and Oswald and Eowa lay dead at Mazer Field. Penda was now the sole ruler of Mercia, and possibly the most powerful king in Britain. And despite his paganism and the death of Oswald, Christianity was also becoming quite a force to be reckoned with on the island. Who could have predicted any of this? So there you have it. That's about two years and a hundred episodes ridiculously condensed for you. Hopefully that gives you a sort of forest view of what was going on there. And while I tell this story and give you a little asides, I don't generally talk too much about what I think of history as a whole, what my general point of view is. And so I think that right now, after doing this monster recap, it might be a good idea to give you a few thoughts of mine, and they really are just my thoughts, so feel free to disregard them. For me, when I look at the full scope of things, from the very first episodes all the way to now, what I see is rather comforting. Rather than fate, or great men, or some sort of grand Kabbalistic conspiracy running everything, what do we see? Well, what I see are a bunch of people who are making choices, but those choices are constrained by their own abilities and also what their culture will allow. Sometimes they're forced into action because that's what's expected of them, as was the case with some Roman emperors. Other times, they're unable to act, because doing so would be outside of their specified roles. And still other times, I see people having a dramatic impact upon the world around them while navigating from within their own cultural constraints, as was the case with King Raidwald's wife. Although she was barred from direct rule and her name wasn't even recorded, she was able to dramatically change the course of Northumbrian and English history with a single conversation. Just one. And it isn't just the spouses of leaders. What about the unnamed warrior who cut down Edwin? Or the Roman soldiers that decided to elevate their leaders into emperors. 
None of these people were great men. Their names weren't even recorded. But here they are, changing the course of history. In many ways, history is chaos. And I find that comforting. There isn't a secret group of oligarchs guiding us, but rather, it's just a massive chaotic blend of people, all with their own interests and desires. So when we look at it, rather than seeing something sterile, something that looks like fate, we see something that's messy, incredibly messy. And I like that because human beings are messy creatures. And in general, when we look at things, we aren't seeing callous autocrats guiding everything from on high with cold precision. Rather, we're seeing a story that sometimes becomes incredibly irrational, with people making decisions that look entirely counter to their own interests. For example, when Urien of Regid was assassinated by one of his own allies right before he was about to defeat Bernicia. To me, that doesn't seem entirely rational. But there must have been something else at play there. And I find comfort in that. We are the way we always have been. Messy people doing stupid things for odd and personal reasons. Small and large choices on matters of everything from war to what we're going to have for dinner. People have an amazing capacity to be astoundingly irrational. Emotions, grudges, flights of fancy, we're all influenced by all sorts of stuff that might not be in our true best interest. And it's nice to see that even our ancestors struggled with that aspect of our humanity. So what I see is that there isn't fate, but rather chaos. And that gives us room to maneuver. After all, without fate, we aren't pawns of forces greater than ourselves. But rather, we can still dip an oar in and try and guide things, at least a little bit. We might not be world leaders, but I think the lesson from history is that we don't need to be. In many regards, leadership is constrained and guided by us as much as we are by them. And so what I take away from the story that we've gotten to know so well is that we all have agency of one sort or another in history. We can all have an impact. And so I find this story, with all its strangeness and confusion, to be one of comfort. And I hope you do too. Thanks for listening.